approach this time to see if this makes them go away and see if maybe for whatever reason it's my setup at home. All right, so in this episode, what we're going to go down, since I've kind of been going on a thing here, um, where I did vampires, I did werewolves, so I figured why not continue with that and we can do mummies. But I'm not going to go down the whole idea of that we've all grown up with, the idea of the mummies from, you know, your Egypt and everything else. I'm going to kind of go through and talk about all of them. Um, starting with, you know, some of the other ones besides the Egyptians, you know. We all heard of the Egyptian mummies. Um, you know, that's what we think of when you, you know, think of mummies. You know, you first think of Egypt, you think of Brendan Fraser in the movie, you know, um, the mummy, uh, everything like that. Those are the things we think of, or the, the mummy's curse from the, you know, early, what was it, the 40s, I think. Those are the ones we think of, but there are other mummies. Um, they're the mummies from horror movies, but then there's also other types of mummification and other cultures that did mummification. In fact, there's some that um, did mummification long before the Egyptians did. Um, so intentional mummification was a common practice throughout the ancient G Egypt, like we said. Um, and it offered amazing in-depth insights into ancient life and death. Um, accidental mummification, while not as prevalent as those of the Egyptians, can also give an amazing insight into ancient cultures and ways of life. So we have a lot like Otzi, the Iceman, was one of the, you know, one that we've, recent one that has been found that was an accidental one that I'll mention a little bit later. We will talk about Otzi a little bit um, as we go through all this. I, I will end this. I will, of course, go through the the Egyptian mummies that we're all used to, but I will, I kind of want to talk about some of these other ones first because I find it fascinating. And then I will even talk about the mummification process and all of that, the, the mummy mummification process for Egyptians and all that. Um, so for the Egyptians, mummification was a preparation for the journey into the next life, um, as it was for some of the pre-Incan societies, such as the Chinchuro, uh, with other pre-Incan civilizations like the Nazcans, uh, remains became mummified due to the environmental conditions. Nazca in Peru is one of the driest spots on earth and any human burials became mummified due to these conditions. So some of these, they just became mummified, not because they, they tried to, but just because that's what the natural conditions made accidental mummies. So, um, but then we have some in South America, you know, um, the, this was really a journey into accidental mummification. Uh, and it began with human sacrifice. So human sacrifice in Central and South American societies was the norm, with the Aztecs taking it to a brutal zenith using volunteers, those that didn't volunteer, and prisoners captured in battle. It's estimated that 1,487 in, sorry, 1,487, an estimated 10,000 people were sacrifices, sacrificed over the course of four days. Um, the Incans were not as prolific in the use of sacrifices, but when they did, they used children, both the Aztecs and the Mayans, the Tetehikuns, I know I pronounced that wrong and I apologize, um, and Toltecs for that matter, and the Incas all sacrificed to appease their respective gods. So the Incan Empire, for the most part, was situated in the Andes. The choice of sacrificial location for the Incans was the high-altitude volcanoes, where the mountain god Apu resided. The cold temperatures at this altitude preserved these sacrifices in almost pristine condition. 
So as much as sacrifices and mummifications were a common practice, grave robbing was as equally popular. Many of the Incan sacrifices, while not containing the mineral wealth of Egyptian tombs, were buried with gold and silver, and as such, many were desecrated and destroyed. Still more remained hidden and have been lost over time. So many of these losses, they call them ice maidens. Um, most Incan sacrifices were young girls, were discovered in the 1990s, or on display throughout Peru and Argentina. The most talked about maiden would be Juanita, who was found intact and in situ on the volcanic peak of Ampatu in the vicinity of Arequipa in southern Peru. She is also, or she is usually on display along with her belongings in a small museum off the main plaza and is a must visit if you're ever in Arequipa. So those are some of the accidental ones. Um, there's a there's more so like we said young girls were chosen at birth or very young early age to act as an akala or sun virgin the inca's primary deity was the sun at the age of 10 girls were chosen to become royal wives priestesses or sacrificial offerings the practice of ritual sacrifice in inca society was intended to ensure health rich harvests and favorable weather young girls were often drugged sometimes boys to ensure compliance using coca leaves and or chichi, a local alcoholic brew, and then taken to the peak of the volcano and killed. Juanita of Arequipa was killed between 1450 and 1480 by blunt trauma to the head. But there's another better looking Juanita, and by better looking we mean betterly preserved, preserved better. Her remains referred to as the Maiden of I'm going to screw this one up too. I don't care. I'm horrible at pronouncing things. You all know that. L L U L L A I L L A C O were found in 1999 on Mount Lelacui. I can't say those words. On the border of Chile and Argentina. She's also a young Incan girl sacrificed to the gods, but she was afforded a more peaceful end as during examination. It was discovered that she had died in her sleep, probably due to exposure. And there's a few like that, some of the girls and boys that basically it seemed like they got them drunk, like they said, and just let them, left them out there to die for exposure, die from exposure. She's considered the most well-preserved mummy in the world. So if you don't believe me, she's in such pristine condition. The archaeologist spoke in her hushed words when they were unwrapping her, fearing they may wake her up. She's on display at the Museum of High Altitude Archaeology in Salta, Argentina. These two Juanitas are the most famous of the mummies of South, Am South America, but Inca and pre-Incan remains can be seen in downtown suburbia, suburban Lima and Nazca in the south and around Trujillo in the north. So, so it's not just, you know, the, the mummies of, you know, Egypt. There's also mummies from, you know, like we said here, Incans. The Incan cultures had mummies. Um, theirs were mainly by accident. You know, like we said, we mentioned Otzi earlier, um, and we will talk about the Chinchiros here in a minute, but I'm going to go through Otzi real quick. So Otzi is a man from another era. Over 5,300 years ago, Otzi was crossing another one I'm not going to be able to pronounce, um, some valley in South Tyrol, where he was murdered and preserved naturally in the ice. He's therefore older than the Egyptian pyramids in Stonehenge, and the result of a series of highly improbable coincidences. Otzi lived during the Copper Age, a period of the late Neolithic. He was still using stone tools, but owned an innovative and very valuable copper axe. 
the skill of extracting and processing metal had recently arrived in Europe from Asia Minor. The advent of copper marked the beginning of the Bronze Age. So, Otzi um, and its artifacts have been exhibited in the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Bolzano, Italy since 1998. The mummy is stored in a specifically devised cold cell and can be viewed through a small window. Otzi's numerous pieces of equipment and clothing have been painstakingly restored. Visitors have been amazed by the skills of Stone Age people. The mummy was dubbed Otzi by the Austrian journalist Carl Wendell, who was looking for a catchy name. The name refers to the discovery site in the Old Soul Valley Alps. The South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology belongs to the autonomous province of Bolzano and is associated with the South Tyrol Regional Museums. So, so he's one, if you've never seen pictures of Otzi, Otzi is very, I mean, very well preserved. Uh, they call him the Iceman. So that's another accidental mummy. So now I mentioned them earlier is the Chinchiro mummies. Um, they are considered the world's oldest, even older than Otzi. So the Chinchiro mummies um, are 7,000 years old. 7,000 years old. The mummies of ancient Egypt, like we said, are famous, but the mummies of Chinchiro, the Chinchiro mummies are older. So uh, the Chinchiros of South America began preserving their dead about 7,000 years ago, and their mummies have become one of the wonders of Andean archaeology. So UNESCO has just recently recognized the cultural value and importance of the Chinchiro mummies by adding them to the World Heritage List. Chilean anthropologists and experts on the mummies, Bernardo Areze, um, explain the significance of this recognition, saying UNESCO is validating an international, on an international level through different experts that the settlements and artificial mummification of the Chinchiro culture has exceptional value that it has global importance. So the Chinchiro people uh, were people who inhabited the coast of the Atacama Desert in what's now northern Chile and southern Peru between 7000 and 1500 BC. The people of this culture relied on fishing, hunting, and gathering for subsistence. While the earliest known Chinchiro sites date to 7000 BC, mummification based on current evidence dates to approximately 5000 BC. This means that the Chinchiro mummies predate the more famous Egyptian mummies by two millennia. The Chinchiro mummies were first identified in 1917 by the German archaeologist Max Ewell. Further excavations show that such mummies were spread along the coast and concentrated between Arica and Cameroons. It was in 1983, however, that the largest and best preserved find of Chinchiro mummies were dis was discovered. This discovery was made not by archaeologists, but by the Arica Water Company while laying a new pipeline near the foot of El Moro. While Ewell initially identified three categories of mummification, showing an increasing complexity over time, archaeologists, archaeologists have since expanded upon his explanation. Accordingly, the two most common methods used in Chinchiro mummification were the black mummy and the red mummy techniques. The black mummy technique was used from about 5000 BC to 3000 BC and involved dismemberment in which the head, arms, and legs of the dead were first removed, then the body was heat dried, and the flesh was completely stripped from the bones. The skull was then cut in half about eye level in order to remove the brain. After drying the skull, it was packed with material and tied back together. 
The rest of the body was also put back together. To strengthen the limbs and spinal columns, sticks were used under the skin. The body was also packed with materials such as clay and feathers. The skull was then reattached to the reassembled body. A white ash paste was used to cover the body and also to fill the gaps left by the reassembling process. Furthermore, this was used to fill out the person's normal facial features. The red mummy technique was used from about 25,000 or 2500 BC to 2000 BC. This was a completely different method compared to the black mummy technique, as the chinchuros made incisions in the trunk and shoulders of the dead to remove the internal organs and dry the body cavity. To remove the brain, the head was cut off from the body. Like the black mummy technique, however, the body was stuffed with various materials in order to make it look more human-like. In addition, sticks were used to provide structural support. The incisions were then sewed up and the head placed back on the body. A wig made from tassels of human hair was placed on the head and held in place by a hat made out of black clay. Everything else apart from this wig and often the face would then be painted with red okra. Ariza, who is also the director of the Chinchuro Center at the Terrapaka University in the city of Erica, said that the mummification methods demonstrate that these bodies are very finely made by specialists. There's a subtlety, a creativity by these first populations. So why are they important? Apart from their age, the Chinchuro mummies are important because they appear to reflect the spiritual beliefs of the ancient Chinchuro people. Although the exact reason why they mummified their dead is unknown, there have been theories put forward. Some scholars maintain that it was to preserve the remains of their loved ones for the afterlife, while another commonly accepted theory is that there was an ancestor cult of sorts. Since there is no evidence of both the bodies traveling from the groups and of them being placed in positions of honor during major rituals as well as delay in the final burial itself. So a lot of people think they took them with them places and basically did this so that they can continue to live with them and do stuff with them, which I see as quite creepy, creepy myself. So one of the most impressive features of the Chinchuro mummies is the scale at which this practice was done. To date, more than 300 mummies have been found, unlike the ancient Egyptians who primarily reserved mummification for royalty and the elite. The, the Chinchero community accorded everyone, regardless of age or status. Um, this sacred site, the decision of egalitarian preservation, is proven in the mummification of all members of society. Men, women, the elderly, children, infants, and miscarried fetuses. In fact, it is often the case that children and babies receive the most elaborate mummification treatments. Ariza suggests that the quantity of child mummies may be linked with the high levels of arsenic poisoning in the water, which may have caused premature births, miscarriages, and high infant mortality rates. He has proposed that the mummification may have been an emotional response from parents faced with these painful losses, so they painted them, dressed them up, and every day this technique became more elaborate. So another possible explanation of this egalitarian funerary practice is climate change. As the Atacama Desert is one of the driest places on earth, corpses would have been preserved naturally. Moreover, as the Chincheros buried their dead in shallow graves, it is likely that the bodies were partially exposed by winds. As the level of seawater increased around 6,000 to 7,000 years ago, the number of marine resources also increased, increased, which in turn supported a larger population. As the group size increased, there would be a greater exchange of ideas, leading to more prosperity and cultural complexity, one of which would be the practice of mummification. Perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of the Chinchuros is that 
Based on the available evidence, it appears that social hierarchy was not developed, unlike other early civilizations. How this culture managed to remain egalitarian for many millennia and function at a social level without hierarchy is something that has intrigued archaeologists and anthropologists for decades. Research into this aspect of the culture is ongoing. Which I think is amazing that a culture was able to last that long with no hierarchy. There was no rich, no poor, no nothing. I mean, they just all lived together, um, which is an amazing thought. It's very interesting to think about. So that was the Chinchiros, um, and we mentioned, you know, the Incans. There's a couple more, but I don't want to go deep into all those because um, I know most people are interested in um, the Egyptians, which is, you know, another obvious one that we 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 will get to but i do before we even get to the egyptians um and we'll probably talk about the egyptian you know mummy's curse i do want to mention a couple you know recent ones so and most of the stuff i've gotten from here is like i've gotten from the history channel um uh, a lot of live science i've used a lot of their info and stuff like that so um, this one is from, it's just, it's kind of funny. It's from only in your state from West Virginia, which, um, my family's from West Virginia. So it makes it interesting for me. So this is about some more recent mummies. The small town of Philippi, West Virginia is home to two unusual mummies with an incredible history that have traveled around the world. They aren't from ancient Egypt or Peru, but were preserved in this town in West Virginia by a local farmer turned scientist. It all began more than 130 years ago with a farmer named Graham Hamrick, who was traveling to develop an embalming method. He wanted to emulate the methods of the ancient Egyptians. Initially experimenting on fruits and vegetables, he later found out an opportunity to try this technique on two cadavers. His efforts were a success. The Moses were shown to P.T. Barnum, and they began to travel with the circus. The Smithsonian Institution took notice and offered to display his work if he provided his embalming formula but Hamrick refused. After traveling with Barnum, they were returned to Philippi, where they were stored in a barn for many years. Eventually, the mummies were acquired by a local couple. They kept them in storage until the nearby Tigart Valley River flooded its banks and the water nearly destroyed them. Following another flood and worried about their worsening condition, the mummies were given to the County Historical Society, where they were restored and safely kept. To this day, many local residents have their own stories about the mummies. So those are some ones where basically Philippi and Philippi, West Virginia, they have their own. So and this was in 1888 that they made these these mummies. So yeah, so that's another interesting one where local, you know, I mean not local, but you know, in the U.S., someone made some mummies more recently. Um, but now we'll go to and we'll talk about the, the, we'll get to the Egyptians. I know I keep teasing about the Egyptians and we'll get to the Egyptians. I know that everyone, everyone wants that. They want the, you know, Brendan Fraser from the mummy because that was the best mummy. Um, Brendan Fraser was the best one. So, so like we said, for many people, mummies and mummification evoke a sense of the macabre and conjuring images of a grotesque linen wrapped monstrosity shambling through an ancient temple. Indeed, for many decades, mummies have been in the cast of horror movies and gothic novels and filed away in the public imagination as belonging to arcane religious rites. But mummification was a widespread and honored tradition in the ancient world, one that was imbued with deep religious significance and often performed by skilled specialists. It was practiced as a way to venerate the dead, 
or express an important religious belief, especially a belief in an afterlife. Various cultures have been known to mummify their dead. The most well-known are the ancient Egyptians, but the Chinese, like we said, the ancient people of the Canary Islands, the Gaunches, and many pre-Columbian societies of South America, like we mentioned already, the Incas practice mummification as well. Um, there's the, yeah, the Chinese have some really good ones. Um, when I was looking through this and doing some other ones, uh, but it was really tough because, well, it's China, it's hard to get information on it. So I couldn't get a lot of information on the Chinese ones. But there are supposedly some really good ones that they haven't done a lot of research on um, in China. So, uh, so we'll talk about how are mummies made. So how are they made? Um, and there, there's a couple different ways. So we'll kind of go through them all, but this is kind of the way really like Egypt did it. So mummification is a process of preserving the body after death by deliberately drying or embalming the flesh. This typically involves removing moisture from a deceased body and using chemicals or natural preservatives such as resin to desiccate the flesh and organs. So desiccate kind of pretty much means to, to dry it out. Mummies are also created by unintentional accidental processes which is known as natural mummification. This can happen when a dead body is exposed to extreme cold, very dry conditions, or some other environmental factors that mitigates against decay. So and that's what we see a lot of times with the natural ones. I know there was one growing up um, living in Washington. You could go down to Seattle to the Ye Old Curiosity Shop, and they had, um, I believe his, was, his name was Sylvester. Um, Sylvester and Sylvia, they had two two mummies. And I remember the guy because you could tell on the, the male, you can even see his... You know, he was dried out and you could see his mustache and you could see the gunshot wound in his, um, I think it was his upper abdomen or lower chest that had killed him. It was quite interesting. So, and I just remembered as a kid going there all the time and checking out Sylvester, the mummy. The oldest mummy on record in North America found at Spirit Cave outside of Fallon, Nevada as an example of natural mummification, uh, wrapped in a tool mat. It was found in a shallow grave and preserved by the dry atmosphere and rarefied air of the cave. Discovered in 1940 and originally believed to be between 1,500 and 2,000 year olds, the individual was subsequently radiocarbon dated in the 1990s and determined to be over 10,000 years old. Um, in contrast, the oldest known Egyptian mummy that was naturally preserved dates to just over 5,500 years ago. Um, the mummy was of a young woman whose body was wrapped in linen and fur after she died. Another famous naturally preserved mummy is the oldest known in Europe. We already mentioned uh, Otzi, who lived about 5,300 years ago. So, um, yeah. So, those were kind of the ones. There was a lot of the, the natural mummification. And then, of course, you know, certain societies, like we already talked about the, the you know, the, the other society that did uh, the mummification with the, the black mummies and the red, the red mummification. Um, and now we're going to kind of, you know, get more into some of these other ones. So the oldest deliberate interior mummies, you know, were unearthed in the Cameroons Valley of Chile. This valley is in the far north of the country in a region called the Atacama Desert. So and this is the ones we were just talking about. Narrow strip of land between the Pacific Ocean and the Andes Mountains. This desert receives little rainfall and is considered one of the driest places on Earth. The mummies were there were found in 1917 by German archaeologist Max Yule at Chinchero Beach near the town of Erica. Arica. The mummies belonged to what Yule called the Chinchero culture, 
which we like we said before, um, who lived in what is now southern Peru and northern Chile. So that's the the chinchiros that we were just talking about, um, and did all that. So mummies, you know, the earlier mummies, like we said, were, were painted with black manganese, and then the older, newer ones were with red okra. So now Egyptian mummification. So it was in an ancient Egypt era that mummification reached its greatest elaboration. So the first Egyptian mummies appear in the archaeologist record at approximately 3500 BC by the time of the Old Kingdom or Age of the Pyramids. So, which would be 2686 to 2181 BC. Mummification was well entrenched in Egyptian cult society. It became a mainstay during subsequent periods, reaching particular heights of sophistication during the New Kingdom. So 1550 to 1069 BC. Unlike in Chinchiro society, mummification in ancient Egypt was typically reserved for the elite of societies such as royalty, noble families, government officials, and the wealthy. Common people were rarely mummified because the practice was expensive. So, mummification in Egypt was deeply entwined with the society's religious beliefs. The ancient Egyptians were obsessed with the afterlife. They believed that there is another life after the life here on earth. The ancient Egyptians believed that when a person died, their spiritual essence survived. The essence was on a journey where it encountered numerous divine and demonic beings, with its ultimate destiny to be judged by Osiris, the god of the dead. It found blameless the deceased was allowed to live with the gods in an eternal paradise. In order for the spiritual part of the deceased to make this journey, the body needed to stay intact. This was why the Egyptians placed such an importance on mummification and why the procedure was undertaken with meticulous care. Unfortunately, there is little discussion of the actual process of mummification in ancient Egyptian texts, at least in the ones who have, that have survived. What is discussed are the rituals involved in mummification rather than the nuts and bolts of the process. Instead, the particulars of the practice have come down to us largely through non-Egyptian sources, such as the 5th century Greek writer Herodotus, Herodotus, who lived from 484 to 425 BC, and his famous work, The Histories. He described three levels of mummification, each distinguished from the other based on the effort and elaborateness of the process. So, the most elaborate process involved the removal of the brain and many of the internal organs first, especially the contents of the abdomen. The brain was typically removed using a curved metal implement that was inserted through the nostrils, while the other organs were removed by hand after an incision was made along the stomach. The empty cavity was filled with a variety of arom aromatic spices, such as myrrh and cassia, so before the body was stitched up. The heart was always left inside because the Egyptian believes, believed it was the most important aspect of the person and that it contained the intellect. So the deceased was then covered in salt for 70 days to remove all moisture. After 70 days had passed, the body was washed and wrapped in linen. A sticky resin was applied to make sure the bandages adhered to the body. The corpse is then handed over to the relatives, Herodotus wrote, who enclosed it who enclose it in a hollow wooden coffin crafted to resemble a human which they have made for this purpose. And once the coffin is closed, they stow it away in a burial chamber. So a few hundred years later, Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, 
lived from 30 to 90 BC, who traveled to and wrote about Egypt, described additional information about the process of mummification. In his book, Library of History, Siculus, noted that the men who performed the mummification called embalmers were skilled artisans who learned the skill as a family business. He wrote that embalmers were considered worthy of every honor and consideration associating with the priests and even coming and going the temples without hindrance. He described the work of these embalmers as too, so meticulous that even the hair on the eyelids and brows remain. The entire appearance of the body is unchanged and the cast of its shape is recognizable. Egyptian mummification gradually faded out in the 4th century when Rome ruled Egypt. Then with the advent of Christianity, the mummification process ceased. Today, except for very rare instances, mummification is a lost art. Most societies consider it bizarre or archaic, a leftover from a bygone time, but echoes of the process can nonetheless be seen in modern funeral homes where embalming the dead plays a role in honoring our loved ones. So really, if you think about it, like what we do now with the dead is, you know, pretty much what the Egyptians started with the Egyptians. So, yeah, so it's very, very interesting of how this happened. Um, you know, the Egyptian mummies, like I said, are the most uh, famous of them, but we have, you know, more accidental ones that I keep running across as I'm running through information. So, um, you have Buddhist monks that practice self mummification by spending years starving their bodies and only eating foods that promoted decay. Once their body fat was gone, they spent a few more years drinking a poisonous sap that caused vomiting to get rid of bodily fluids. The poison also made the body an unsavory future host for corpse-eating bugs. When the time was right, the monks were buried alive to await death and mummification. Death came quickly, but self-mummification seldom worked. So, it was another way they tried to do it. So, um, yeah, quite interesting stuff, so... So like we said, the, the mummification process, there was a couple of different ways. Um, the, the, and there was, I mean, we say that it was the the rich and famous were the only ones, you know, and the, the, all those people were the only ones who really did it. But they did do some of the young, some of the other ones. So ancient Egyptians of all walks of life mummified deceased family members, but the process wasn't as elaborate for the poor. Some cor corpses were simply filled with juniper oil to dissolve organs before burial. And that's one that I, I read somewhere else, and I wasn't going to go deep into it, but basically they filled them with juniper oil and then plugged all their, their orifices and basically, <laughs> I don't know if they shook them up or whatever, but let the juniper oil, like, do their thing, and then they'd unplug them and, like, just let everything, like, run out. So, yeah. But they would leave them with everything, bury them with all their, everything they needed, so... Vehicle, you know, vehicles, tools, food, wine, perfume, household items. Some pharaohs were even buried with pets and servants. So, yeah. So, because they were put in ornate stone coffins and put with everything. So, a lot of stuff. A lot of things with that. So, according to a 1927 abstract published in Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine, medicinal preparations made from powdered mummies were popular between the 12th and 17th centuries. During that time, countless mummies were countless mummies were disentombed and burned to meet the demand for mummy medicine. The interest in mummies as medicine was based on supposed medicinal properties of bitumen, 
a type of asphalt from the Dead Sea. It was thought mummies were involved with bitumen, but that was rarely the case. Most were involved with were involved with resins. So mummies go mainstream. When when mummies decided to kind of go mainstream was perhaps um, when the best known modern mummy, who was King Tut in common, um, commonly known as King Tut, was found. Um, his tomb and mummified body were discovered in 1822 by British archaeologist Howard Carter. Um, it was an exhilarating find, yet destined to be overshadowed by several unexplained deaths. So now we're going to kind of go into, you know, we've talked a little bit about mummies and all that kind of stuff. Now we're going to talk a little bit about not just mummies, but we're going to talk about the curse of the mummy. So, and King Tut's one that I, I mean, the more I've looked into all of this stuff, um, the more I'm fascinated with King Tut's story, the whole idea that his, his father, um, basically turned Egypt from being a multi, uh, theological society into a mono theological, theological society, um, where they only worshiped one God, um, then King Tut took over. They started going back to the multi, but a lot of people think that he may have been more along the beliefs of his father, but he was too young to really go against his his advisor. There's a whole lot of stuff. A lot of people think he was killed by his advisor who married his wife, who was also his sister. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing. If you ever get a chance, look down the history of King Tut and the fact that he literally, until they found his his tomb he had been basically erased from history along with his father so they, they erased his his father from history because of all the stuff that he did and it's quite fascinating to kind of look and see what happened with that one i almost just went all the way down with the whole idea of king tut and then decided that i kind of wanted to just really go um mummies i might come back in another time and do king tut and just the fascinating you know he moved the entire uh his father actually was the more, his father is honestly more fascinating with everything that he did. But he moved the entire, like, you know, capital of Egypt to a whole new place, um, which was another place that was marked, like, just destroyed from history. Um, and a lot of things where pharaohs after King Tut basically erased King Tut and his dad from history until um, King Tut's tomb was found, which many people think wasn't even supposed to be his tomb. Um, he just died before they got his maid. So the tomb that he was in was actually somebody else's, which many people think might've been Nefertiti's. Nefertiti's, Nefertiti was King Tut's uh, stepmom. So quite interesting things to go down. Yeah. So, sorry. So I kind of went off on a tangent there. Um, according to folklore, disturbing a mummy's tomb leads to death. This superstition didn't rattle Carter. However, um, now stop, stop him, nor stop him from exhuming Tut's tomb. Still, when several people involved in his expedition died early of nat unnatural causes, the story was sensationalized by the media, even though the so-called curse spared Carter's life. So Carter, who's the one that got even opened it, um, spared his life, but his partner, not so much. So, according to folklore, or I just said that, mummies became more than religious symbols of the ancient world in the early 20th century with the debut of Brahms Stroker's novel, The Jewel of the Seven Stars, which featured them as supernatural villains. But it was Bar Boris Karloff's portrayal of a mummy in the 1932 movie, The Mummy, that made mummies mainstream monsters. Later movies such as The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Curse portrayed mummies as the heavily bandaged mute beings 
they're known as today. Fictional mummies can't feel pain, and like other horror monsters, are hard to kill. The most effective way to send them to a permanent demise is to set them on fire. Despite being real and creepy, mummies don't have the same notoriety as zombies, werewolves, and vampires. So, yeah. So, that's a little bit on that part of it. So, now we're going to go into the curse. So, we went through Egyptian mummies. We talked about the process. So, and actually, before we go, I think I want to go deeper into that process. Before we get into the curse of the mummies. So, like I said, the mummification process took 70 days. Special priests worked as embalmers, like we mentioned, treating and wrapping the body beyond knowing... The correct rituals and prayers performed at various stages. The priest also needed a detailed knowledge of human anatomy. The first step in the process was the removal of all internal parts that might decay rapidly. The brain was removed by carefully inserting special hooked instruments up through the nostrils in order to pull out bits of brain tissue. It was a delicate operation, one which could easily disfigure the face. The embalmers then removed the organs of the abdomen and chest through a cut usually made on the left side of the abdomen. They left only the heart in place, believing it to be the center of a person's being and intelligence. The other organs were preserved separately, with the stomach, liver, lungs, and intestines placed in special boxes or jars, today called canopic jars. These were buried with the mummy, and later mummies, the organs were treated, wrapped, and replaced within the body. Even so, unused canopic jars continue to be a part of the burial ritual. The embalmers next removed all moisture from the body. This they did by covering the body with natron, a type of salt which has great drying properties, and by placing additional natron packets inside the body. When the body had dried out completely, embalmers removed the internal packets and lightly washed the natron off the body. The result was a very dried out but recognizable human form. To make the mummy seem even more lifelike, sunken areas of the body were filled out with linen and other materials and false eyes were added. Next, the wrapping began. Each mummy needed wraps, hundreds of yards of linen. The priest carefully wound the long strips of linen around the body, sometimes even wrapping each finger and toe separately before wrapping the entire hand or foot. In order to protect the dead from mishap, amulets were placed among the wrappings and prayers and magical words written on some of the linen strips. Often the priest placed a mask of the person's face between the layers of head bandages. At several stages, the form was coated with warm resin and the wrapping resumed once again. At last, the priest wrapped the vinyl cloth or shroud in place and secured it with linen strips. The mummy was complete. The priests preparing the mummy were not the only ones busy during this time. Although the tomb preparation usually had begun long before the person's actual death, now there was a deadline and craftsmen, workers, and artists worked quickly. There was much to be placed in the tomb that a person would need in the afterlife. Furniture and statuettes were, re were readied. Wall paintings of religious or daily scenes were prepared and lists of foods or prayers finished. Through a magical process, these models, pictures, and lists would become the real thing when needed in the afterlife. Everything was now ready for the funeral. As part of the funeral, priests performed special religious rites at the tomb's entrance. The most important part of the ceremony was called opening of the mouth. A priest touched various parts of the mummy with a special instrument to open those parts of the body to the senses enjoyed in life and needed in the afterlife. By touching the instrument to the mouth, the dead person can now speak and eat. He was now ready for his journey to the afterlife. The mummy was placed in his coffin or coffins in the burial chamber and the entrance sealed up. So, such elaborate burial practice might suggest that the Egyptians were preoccupied with thoughts of death. On the contrary, they began 
early to make plans for their death because of their great love of life. They could think of no life better than the present, and they wanted to be sure it would continue after death. So, but why preserve the body? The Egyptian believed that the mummified body was the home for this soul or spirit. If the body was destroyed, the spirit might be lost. The idea of spirit was complex, involving really three spirits, the Ka, the Ba, and the Ak. Ak. The Ka, a double of the person who can remain in the tomb and needed the offerings and objects there. The Ba, or soul, was free to fly out of the tomb and return to it. And it was the Ak, Ak, A-K-H, perhaps translated as spirit, which had to travel through the underworld to the final judgment and entrance to the afterlife. To the Egyptian, all three were essential. So that's kind of the, the way it worked and why it happened. So now the curse of the mummy. So we're going to kind of go through and talk about the curse and, you know, all the wonderful things. So movies... Movie mummies are known for two things, fabulous riches and a nasty curse that bring tre treasure hunters to a bad end. Um, but Hollywood did not invent that. So, the mummy's curse first enjoyed worldwide acclaim after the 1922 discovery of King Tut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor, Egypt. When Howard Carter, Howard Carter opened a small hole to peer inside the tomb at treasures hidden for 3,000 years, he also unleashed a global passion Tut's glittering treasures made great headlines, especially following the opening of the burial chamber on February 16, 1923. And so did sensationalistic accounts of the subsequent death of expedition sponsor Lord Carnarvon. In reality, Carnarvon died of blood poisoning and only six of the 26 present, present when the tomb was opened died within a decade. Carter surely... Any curse's prime target lived until 1939, almost 20 years after the tomb was open. But while the first curse may lack a bite, it hasn't lost the ability to f fascinate audiences, which may be how it originated in the first place. So, and there's some ideas of the birth of this, and there's stuff if you actually go down and research Tut. Um, and like I said, a lot of people actually think that the curse starts all the way back right after his death. Um, with multiple people dying right after he died, um, most likely to cover up the fact that uh, he was m possibly murdered by his, you know, grand vizier. So, but that's a that's a whole nother thing. Like I said, that we'll get into maybe some other time. So, the late Egyptologist Dominic Montserrat conducted a comprehensive search and concluded that the concept began with a strange striptease in 19th century London. My work shows quite clearly that the mummy's curse concept predates Carnarvon's Tutankhamun discovery and his death by a hundred years. Montserrat told the Independent UK in an interview some years before his own death. Montserrat believed that a lively stage show in which real Egyptian mummies were unwrapped inspired first one writer and subsequently several others to pen tales of mummy's revenge. The thread was even picked up by little woman author Louisa May Alcott in her nearly unknown volume, Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse. My research has not only confirmed that there is, of course, no ancient Egyptian origin of the mummy's curse concept, but more importantly, it also reveals that it didn't originate in the 1923 press publicity about the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb either. Montserrat stressed to the Independent. 
But Salima Ikram, an Egyptologist at the American University in Cairo and a National Geographic Society grantee, believes the curse concept did exist in ancient Egypt as part of a primitive security system. She notes that some mastaba, so early non-pyramid tombs, walls in Giza and Sekira were actually inscribed with curses meant to terrify those who would desecrate or rob the royal resting place. They tend to threaten desecrators with divine retribution by the council of the gods, Ikram said, or a death by crocodiles or lions or scorpions or snakes. So... So those are some of the earlier ideas. So some also think, um, was there a toxic threat? So in recent years, some have suggested the Pharaoh's curse was biological in nature. So they think that, you know, could sealed tombs house pathogens that can be dangerous or even deadly to those who open them after thousands of years, especially people like Lord Carnarvon with weakened immune systems. So, um... This is also the thing where they think a lot of times, too, with the melting ice caps and stuff like that, that there might be viruses and stuff hidden in those melted ice caps that could come out of those when the freezing ends and uh, cause major problems. So the mausoleums house not only mausoleums house not only the dead bodies of humans and animals, but foods to provision them for the afterlife. Lab studies have shown some ancient mummies carried mold, including Aspergillus niger, niger and Aspergillus flavus, which can cause congestion or bleeding in the lungs. Lung-assaulting bacteria such as Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus may also grow on tomb walls. These substances may make tombs sound dangerous, but scientists seem to agree that they are not. So a lot of people say that they're there, but it's kind of one of those things that they probably weren't that bad. So, like... F.D. Wolf Miller, professor of epidemiology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, concurs with Howard Carter's original opinion. Given the local conditions, Lord Carnarvon was probably safer inside Tut's tomb than outside. Upper Egypt in the 1920s was hardly what you'd call sanitary, Miller said. The idea that an underground tomb after 3,000 years would have some kind of bizarre microorganism in it that's going to kill somebody six weeks later and make it look exactly like blood poisoning, it's very hard to believe. In fact, Miller said he knows of no archaeologist or a single tourist, for that matter, who has experienced any afflictions caused by tomb toxins. But like the movie mummies who invoke malediction, the legend of the mummy's curve seems destined to live on. So that's kind of one of those things on the, the, the mummy's curse is it's not, there's a lot of things that people, I found a lot of things where they talk about that, where people thought maybe it was toxins. Other scientists would say, no, there's no way that the toxins would be still, they, they wouldn't have had anything to, to pretty much live off of after a certain amount of time that, you know, and everything else. So there's just, there's no way that they really would. And the fact that Carter himself stayed down there and you know for years documenting and everything else and never had a problem it would suggest that if there's some kind of toxin it would have taken him out um and lord carnarvon like we said he he everyone there was 11 people of the original 26 who did die within the next 10 years but it was the 1920s I mean, many things, and none of them, it wasn't all from, like, diseases. Like we said, Lord Carnarvon died from blood poisoning. Um, another one was murdered by his wife. Um, one took his own life. Um, 
some of them, you know, just had accidental deaths. Some died from, you know, disease. I mean, it was just, it was random things. So, um, so there's a whole bunch of those things. So, the, and like we said, there's a lot of people that believe it, it predates um, that there's even, you know, messages or things from, you know, other authors talking about it long before that. And a lot of people think it really came down from people talking about it after, you know, the, the, the stage show where they were basically stripping a mummy. So, which is just, it's horrible. So there's a lot of other weird things you can hear about the, the, the mummy's curse. So um, I'm going to go through a few things here, different ones where they talk about. So like we said, we think it actually predates the mummy's curse. Um, so there's forgotten American fiction stories from the 1860s in which male adventurers strip female mummies and steal their jewels only to suffer horrible, horrible death or dreadful consequences for those around them. Um, these stories written by women emphasize unwrapping of mummies as a metaphor for rape. And of course, in turn, this shocking comparison seems to condemn the destruction and theft of Egypt's heritage and the heyday of Western colonialism. Other scholars agree that the association of curses and magic with mummies was widespread before the discovery of Tut's tomb. The idea that Egypt was a land of mystery went back to the Greeks and the Romans. Um, a lot of that stuff like that. Over time, the ancient Egyptians were credited with all sorts of supernatural and magical knowledge. And there's a lot of that where they believe that, especially with the, the you know, you got the pyramids, you've got all that, um, everything else where people are like, oh, hey, you know, they had all this magical stuff to the Romans, everyone would say stuff. So when Egypt began to open up to the West after the expedition of Napoleon, there was a fascination with mummies and well-to-do people bought them to have them unwrapped as entertainment. Many people were troubled by this sort of meddling with the dead. At that time, fictional stories that told of curses associated with mummies began to appear in literature. literature. So, notice that Irish author Bram Stoker, who was most famous for his Dracula novel, published a 1903 book called The Jewel of the Seven Stars, in which modern-day archaeologists suffer from a mummy's curse. Cinema also picked up on the idea of a curse being associated with mummies. A lecturer of English literature at the University of Birmingham in the UK and author of the book, Writing the Sphinx. Um, essentially, by the time of Carnarvon's death, audiences were primed to see discovery of Egyptian artifacts in terms of these Gothic narratives. So, they noted that when the Titanic sank in 1912, some people believed that the mummy of a priestess in the British Museum had caused the sinking. British Museum curator Ernest Wallace Budge received so many public inquiries regarding the allegedly cursed mummy at the museum that he was obliged to write a flyer debunking the rumors that could be distributed to members of the public. Despite this, some people sent money for the museum to purchase flowers to lay at the feet of the dead priestess to placate her soul, and the tale of the mummy that sank the Titanic continues to circulate on the internet today. There was no mummy on the Titanic. So... The press exclusive sold to the Times of London played a major role in the spread of the idea that Tut's tomb was cursed. Other media outlets were outraged that they were shut out and ran stories on the curse. Foremost among the disgruntled reporters was Arthur Regal, a journalist, novelist, former Egyptologist, and bitter rival of Howard Carter. When Carnarvon died, Regal pounced, claiming that the curse of Tutankhamun had killed him. Even though Regal reported they did not believe in the curse themselves. Millions of gullible people, however, were eager to, eager to believe the tale. Having been raised on a diet of curse, lore, and fiction for decades, 
and desperate to confirm the idea that it was possible to communicate with the dead, having lost so many young men during World War I. So the fact that a number of famous authors believed in the curse, such as Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes novels, helped spread relief in the curse. Doyle stated to the press that Carnarvon had been killed by element souls, protective spirits living in the tomb. So Carter himself got involved in the curse Bruja when he teamed up with a magazine writer named Percy White in 1923 to write a semi-fictional magazine story called Tomb of the Bird, Death of the White Canary, that told an account of the death of Carter's pet canary. It was a semi-fictionalized account of the death of Carter's canary, supposedly from a scare or bite from a cobra. Carter's indulgence and curse speculations came back to haunt him. However, newspapers were awash with more lies than truth about Tut's alleged curse, which irked him. So even today, some people like to link archaeological discoveries and contemporary events with curses. When a massive 2,000-year-old sarcophagus was found in Alexandria, Egypt in 2018, some people feared that opening it could unleash a curse. Similarly, when a ship blocked the Suez Canal in 2021, some people tried to place the blame on mummies, noting that the mummies of several ancient Egyptian pharaohs were sent to be transported to a museum in Fustat. People want life to have meaning and not be chaotic and random or coincidental. Traditionally, formal religion was supply, has supplied that need to explain existence, but many people have turned to magical and supernatural beliefs, and these include curses. So that's pretty much going to you know end what I had on mummies. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun talking about mummies, you know, stuff like that, and uh, the vampires and werewolves the last couple weeks. Let me know what you guys want to hear next. Um, I think it's fascinating to look at this stuff and the, the mummy's curse and everything else. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating to me. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it sounds better. Um, working on the sound, let me know what it's, how, it, how it sounds on this. And maybe this might be the new way I'm going to have to record until I can figure out what is going on with my computer at the house. So thank you all. Um, enjoy. Uh, thank you to... Fringe Radio Network for playing us, and of course, NWCZ Radio for being the, the mothership. And if you need to want to get a hold of us, reach out to us at downtherh at protonmail.com, or you can find me at Mr. underscore B underscore 666 on Instagram. Thank you all, and then have a great night. Computer at the house. So, thank you all. Um, enjoy uh thank you to fringe radio network for playing us and of course nwcz radio for being the the mothership and if you need to want to get a hold of us reach out to us at down the rh at protonmail.com or you can find me at mr underscore b underscore 666 on instagram thank you all and have a great night <laughs>